morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? So excited you guys are here. My name is Jason Piffle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And uh, man, it's been a good week. It's been a really good week. Hopefully your week has been great too. Uh, we're excited to be in a series called Find Your Way. Uh, we're cruising through the book of Proverbs. We're not heading every single verse, or that would probably take us a couple decades to get through it. Uh, we're kind of hitting the highlights uh, and have hit a few really cool topics, like we talked about the tongue. Uh, a few weeks ago, Jamie talked about money, which is everybody's favorite topic. Uh, last week, we talked about family, and Michael did a great job of really unpacking the role of the gospel in the life of a family and how it really changes how we interact with our kids and to create a gospel view of everything. And so uh, it's really, really cool. Uh, we're just kind of plugging away, and we're going to go to Easter with a few more uh, topics. Well, this week, you get the pleasure of hearing me talk about emotions. I'm not a very emotional guy. Like, I'm not the kind of guy that cries at movies or pretty much anything else. Um, I'm not the guy that gets really, really angry and just lashes out. I'm a pretty stoic, even kind of guy. So when I got this passage in Proverbs, I was like, okay. What am I supposed to do with this? And so uh, I started thinking about emotion. I was like, oh, you know, what kind of emotions have I experienced? And like, what has been relevant for me? And honestly, the first thing that came to mind was this song, right? I love this song. I just have to tell you, this was one of my all-time favorite songs. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I remember sitting underneath the steps uh, at my parents' house, we had a little split level, and I had me a little uh, eight-track portable player, and I would just play the song, and it just, what's not to like? I mean, and the video is even better with this Owen Mills thing. It's unreal. So emotion, I mean, that song even just kind of evokes a certain emotion within me. It just makes me happy, you know. But when I think about my life growing up, and I, th and I was trying to pinpoint different times in my life where I experienced significant maybe upheaval or some significant uh, memorable emotion in my life, I came up with about six different things. Uh, obviously, the, the number one for me was when I was 17 years old, sitting on a bus, coming home from a youth event, uh, accepting Jesus into my life, like surrendering my life to Christ in that moment was a very emotional moment for me. Uh, it was a moment where, where I relinquished control of a lot of things in my life and really gave my life to Christ. Um, I remember in high school, three different moments where um, people that I knew, some of them friends, some of them acquaintances, that committed suicide. That created some emotional upheaval in my life and moments in my life that I don't really I can't really forget, and nor do you want to forget, but you start thinking about what life is really about. Uh, in my later years, I remember feeling kind of betrayed by a friend, someone that I felt was like significant in my life, and then all of a sudden something changed, and I was like, why is this kind of happening? I remember times where I've had friends around me who have experienced moral failure, um, numerous um, guys that I know that have cheated on their wives, uh, people that are not married, having sex outside of marriage, things like that that has made my heart sad, and this emotion has come out, and, and also just a feeling of like, I can't control this, like, and, and you just feel kind of stuck in life. I remember the birth of my first child. 
uh, Isabella six years ago in a time in our life where we didn't think we'd ever, ever have a child, where that wouldn't happen for us. And to be there at the delivery and see this little, uh, little girl was amazing. Like, it, like one of the first times, very few times, that I was brought to tears and tears of joy and being like so excited about what God had done in our lives. And then again, like number two, you're like, okay, check that one off my list. But then my second child, Isla, comes along and the same thing happens it was significant. The last thing I remember, not last, I've had more emotions than just these six, uh, but the, the last one that I'm going to share with you uh, has, was like last fall, sitting outside of a Starbucks with a friend and praying, interacting, and then praying to receive Christ, that he would do that and seeing his tears run down his face and, and me crying with him, like that was a significant moment. It was a memorable moment for me. And they were, each one of these things were marked really by emotion. And so today we're going to talk about these things and what's good and what's bad and how do we deal with these things and how does Jesus enter into this whole discussion about emotion. So if you turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs today. Um, probably about one verse you're going to have to look up. It's in chapter 15. If you go to the Old Testament, you're probably going to find Psalms pretty quick, and it's the next book after that. So here it is. Proverbs 15.30. It's going to be right up on the screen behind us, and here's what it says. It says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. This verse, I first, I, I looked at it, and I was like, yeah, I'm not catching that. I need to study some more. And after a while, it really kind of became very apparent that what, um, what was being talked about in this verse is that what you see on the outside of a person, in most cases, matches what's on the inside. And so when you see somebody who is authentically joyful, you probably, there's something inside their heart that is driving towards that sort of emotion. And so when we think about all the things that are inside of us or who, that could potentially be there, you know, when we look at our lives and we find out that we are filled with hopelessness, for many people on the outside, that looks like depression. It looks like being stuck at home, just sad all the time because life is hopeless. For some of us that are angry, maybe you have just this angst in your heart, that may look like you, potentially, or me, lashing out at coworkers or lashing out at family members or saying things that we really wish we could take back. For some of us, we have jealousy inside. And, and so for us, we live out a life of gossip and slander because we're trying to push other people down so they're not quite as high or maybe kind of towering over who we are. You may be filled with frustration. For some of you guys, you're like, some of these don't even apply to me, but this one, frustration, that's it right there. And when you live a life of frustration, negativity comes out. You're just kind of the person who's just kind of constantly complaining about your circumstances and everything that's going around, around us. And the last one I'm going to hit today is fear. When we live a life of fear, that really leads to isolation, doesn't it? Or worry. We live a life of fearfulness. We think that we can gain safety by like creating our little bubble and kind of like hiding in the midst of that fear. 
But let's be honest, some of us are good fakers, right? Some of us make the outside look really, really nice and really good, but on the inside, we're just dead inside. And I would say, especially with the community that we live in, this is probably very, very common, right? You see people that you're like, man, they got it all together. They don't have a problem in this world at all. And then you unearth their heart, and you just see that it's just full of pain, and it hurts just so bad. So who are you? When you think about these things, and you think about where your heart is, are you a faker? Are you kind of managing the outside? Is that you? Or are you someone who's just like letting it go, and not in a good way? Everything that's in your heart is just coming out of who you are to other people. You see, it's natural wisdom to really be drawn to the house of folly, right? We've been talking about this, this idea of wisdom and folly. And we are just kind of naturally drawn this way to the, to the house of folly, to be able to like engage our sin nature and really to live a life that's kind of self-destructive rather than pursuing wisdom in our lives and making good choices. It's kind of who we are. It's how we function. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I got a verse right here. It's uh, Ecclesiastes 8.1. Here's what it says. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And so there's something about the pursuit of wisdom. There's something about this redemptive act that needs to happen inside of us that causes our emotions to be what they're supposed to be. And so that only happens through a savior. I think if if you kind of look at your life and you could be a self-helper and go, well, these are the five steps I need to, to be happy. And that always, always falls short outside of the gospel. And so you really end up in two camps. These are kind of where we are. We're either emotionally excessive or emotionally dead. So that for people like us who kind of live in the extremes, or maybe you aren't, would say that you're not really living according to the gospel, you're not really letting the gospel move inside you and change you, you're probably in one of these two categories. Either you don't feel anything or you feel everything. You know what I'm saying? Somebody put it like this. He says, you either live in an, emotion, in an emotional jungle or you live in an emotional desert, one of the two. And so I think the gospel comes in and wants to redeem that and create an emotion that is aligned with how God made us. And so let's take a look at Christ. It's probably the, it is the best example that we can possibly unearth. What are the emotions of Jesus? Like, how, how can we find this balance in the middle? And so we're going to go through, I think, five different passages pretty quick, um, but they're really great passages, I think, that really get to the heart of the issue here. So the first one we've got is in Mark uh, chapter 3. Um, all these will be up in front back here, um, but we do the, use the ESV Bible, so if you're kind of wondering kind of where we're at, uh, there's also a Bible in the front of you if you want to follow along. So let me read this passage. I think it's a great one. This is talking about Jesus, and he's in the synagogue, so he's in the place where all the church leaders are, and then here's how it goes. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus, they would be the church leaders, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. All right, so the idea was that Jesus coming in, if he heals this guy, he's doing work on the Sabbath and he's like broken a lot, and that's a bad thing in their minds. And so Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to the people around him, 
is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or to kill? But the people around him were silent. And then he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Okay, two emotions right there. You got that? He looked around them with anger, and then he grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. That's messed up. If you think about it, like he just healed a guy. Like what's, I mean, that's amazing. What a great thing. But these people's hearts, their hearts were so hardened that they didn't care. And they were out to get Jesus. And so Jesus, here's a guy who exhibited, I think, a righteous anger in that moment. It's like, this isn't right. I'm angry about this. Ray Ortland says this about Jesus. He said, Jesus never wavered in openly resenting what was wrong with the world. I think that's a great quote because I think it creates emotional balance. You know what I mean? And so when you think about anger, you're like, it's okay to be angry about things that are not right in our world, you know? It comes with control, self-control. But that's where the balance is found. You know, I've been moved to anger uh, more times than not, probably more so since I've had children than before kids, Probably you relate with that. I don't know what it about like pushing my buttons it is, but it, it, that's just kind of what kids do. And sometimes I move for the right reasons, but most of the time I move for the wrong reasons. So instead of giving you the wrong ones and making myself look really, really terrible, let me give you the, a good one. I remember being at the park. I was over here at Picnic Park. I was here with my girls, and I was standing next to my youngest, who's four years old, almost four of this month. And uh, I'm staying there, and I'm talking to somebody, and I hear out of the side another little girl look at Isla and say, go away. We don't want to play with you. And I about when I came out of my skin at this other little kid and, and her friends who didn't want to play with my daughter, and I'm like, this is unjust. This is terrible. And you would think that I just would have walked away and been like, it's okay, honey. But I looked at this little girl. And I said, that's not very nice. And she immediately, she can play with us. And I think in that moment, I was just like, you know what? This is unjust and this is wrong. Like, there's no reason to be that way except for sin. Just kind of naturally who we are. Like, you don't teach a kid to do that, you know? And so in that moment, I felt like it was righteous. Who knows? You can judge me later on when you go home and talk about it over lunch. Uh, but I felt like it was saying that there's something wrong with this world. And honestly, for her, I felt like, man, what a bummer that you're living a life that's like that. And I think we can apply that to many other situations in our life, can't we? Here's the next one. Jesus was moved to compassion. It's found, uh, we're going to look at Luke 7. That's where we're going to go next. Uh, verse 11, and we're going to cruise to this. So, so afterwards, Jesus, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Okay, got the picture? And only, he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Gotcha? And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. 
So to me, like, that communicates passion, that people cared for this lady to kind of come with her and surround her and walk out her dead son out of the city. And so when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He said, do not weep. But it didn't end there. And then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. So kind of pallbearer kind of thing, kind of picture that. And then he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Death is not how life is supposed to be. Death is a result of sin. And so everything you think about as it relates to Jesus, he's trying to make things that are not the way it's supposed to be the way they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? So he's like, the way life was in the garden before sin, that's the way he's giving us a picture of the way life will be eventually someday. And so death will not be one of those things in the future. And so he's kind of going, you know what? This is a picture of the kingdom come. But in the midst of that, he has compassion. He feels for this lady who's a widow. Nobody to take care of her, and her only son has died. And he feels compassion. I think that's a great, great trait. When I think about my own life, I've been moved to compassion at times, but then there's times that I'm not moved to compassion frequently. Like, when I see this commercial, I am not moved to compassion because I flip the channel really quick. When I see this commercial, Part of me is moved to compassion, and a part of me flips the channel very fast. Maybe you're like me, and maybe that's how you function, because sometimes it's easier to not feel, kind of like that emotional desert we talked about. Sometimes you kind of see things, and you're like, I don't want to be moved to feel anything. And that's kind of generally how I work in life, and that's my sin coming through. I don't think that's the way Jesus intended us to be. I think he intended us to take action. He intended us to move and to move and to care for people and to have compassion for the people around us. Jesus was moved to sorrow. He was moved to sorrow at the loss of his friend, Lazarus, who eventually rose him from the dead too, resurrected him. But here's another one. Uh, Matthew 26, and this is right before Jesus is heading to the cross, and he's with his friends, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it kind of goes like this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then, and then taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You see, Jesus, the reason he was sorrowful is he's thinking about this thing that's coming. He knows the cross is coming. He knows the pain leading up to the cross is coming. But the thing I think that he's sorrowful, most sorrowful about is that the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him. And he, for the first time ever, he's going to experience the wrath of God and the separation from his father. 
and that creates sorrow. That creates a sorrow that I don't think any single person in this room has ever experienced sorrow like that. I know we haven't. And I look at that and I go, that's pain and that's hurt and that's suffering. I think when we experience sorrow, I think a part of sorrow is very healthy. And that's what I'm saying. All these emotions are healthy things. To lose a friend or a family member who passes away from whatever reason is a sorrowful experience. It comes with grief, and it takes a while to overcome that. I sat with a friend who uh, lost her baby. Her baby passed away. I think I've said this before, two days after it was born. And I sat with my friend, and that was a very sorrowful time. It was very sad. I think when it becomes unhealthy is when the sorrow leads to, to more sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. And you get a decade down the road if you've never experienced any healing from that. You see how something that is a good thing can be perverted to something that's not healthy. And so that's how life goes. That's where we're at, and we're going to address that in a minute. Next one, Jesus was not moved to being a coveting person. I think this is a really interesting passage. It's found in Matthew 4. Uh, it's verses 8 through 10. This is where Satan takes Jesus out into the desert, or he's out in the desert, and he becomes, for 40 days, he's hungry, he's tired, and he becomes tempted by Satan. Um, so here it is. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and you worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible talks about being Jesus, part, like he was the creator, like he was in and involved with creating the world. So the ironic thing about this passage is you've got a created being. Some people don't realize that, that Satan was also created. He's not eternal. He's not all-powerful. You all understand that? So you have a created being tempted, tempting a creator with the created. You guys got that? It's a bizarre thing if you think about it. A created being tempted the creator with a created item. Jesus knew that the only thing worth having was a relationship with the Father. That's it. There's no reason for him to covet or want anything else because he's got God. He's got this relationship that is perfect with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that's a significant thing. When I find myself coveting with, uh, of other people, I, I kind of look at myself and I go, what am I being tempted with? I've, I'm a created being being tempted with the created things. And I'm traded in those created things for the creator. Y'all follow me? A lot of C words all wrapped up in one thing there. So, but that's how we function we're just naturally drawn, instead of being in a relationship with the Almighty God, the one who created us, we choose to swap that out and go after something created. We want a new car. We want a new house. We want to live, not in this neighborhood, because this isn't quite the one that's good for me, so we're going to move over here. We're not in the right club. Maybe our kid's not going to the right school in Petrie City. They should, probably shouldn't be going over here. They should be going over here, because... My kid's better than that. And it goes on 
and on and on, and we trade the creator for something created. Here's a way to find out if you're a person who covets, which probably most of us would be like, yeah, that's me. Does it irritate me? Does it irritate you when other people succeed and you don't? It's a great question to ask yourself because it gets to your heart. It's like, what's behind that? Why am I functioning that way that I would want ill for other people? Would it make you happy to see someone else fail, to kind of fall off their pedestal? (gasps) Yay, inside I would just cheer. That's what we're talking about. Last one, here it is. Jesus was not moved to shame, but rather to joy. Can you imagine being around Jesus, right? Picture yourself in the New Testament, hanging out. You see this guy. He's like the happiest guy you've ever seen. He's like walking around. He's like, hey, he's telling jokes, and he's hugging people. And and you sit back, and you go, there's something different about this guy. There's something different about him. He's amazing. Why would I not want to leave him, leave what I'm doing, and go hang out with this guy? That's why crowds followed him. There was something new and different about him. I think some people went because they're like, hey, I want to see a miracle. Who wants to do that? You know, we all want that, right? But he had a certain charisma that was very, very healthy because this joy that came out of him. I would say that that joy lasted and went right through the cross. And I've got a verse for you in just a minute. When you look at the cross, the point of the cross is shame. That's the whole design behind the cross. It was to take someone who had failed in life, who had maybe done some sort of criminal activity, was to haul them up this hill, nail them to a piece of wood, and let them hang there all day, So the whole town looks up and sees, oh, there he is. He's getting what comes to him. And his family, they're just as bad. It was all about shame, shame upon shame. That was the design of the cross. And you take an innocent man like Jesus and you stick him there to pay for our sins. Hebrews 12 says this. Because of the joy that was awaiting him, Okay, so because of the joy that was coming for Christ, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And so Jesus, even though he went through this very this experience that was designed to be shameful, was always looking for the joy. And the joy was one, I will be reconciled and reconnected with my Father. One and two, this will provide a pathway for every single person to reconcile with my Father. Also, it's worth it. So that is what brought joy to him and to who he is. Shame is really when sin defines our existence. And some of you may be sitting here today feeling shameful. You may be remembering what happened in the past or what's going on currently. And when our sin really defines us, you feel shame. And in a sense, there's a piece of shame that's not a bad thing. If your shame leads you to the gospel, if your shame leads you to repentance and an acceptance of Jesus in your life, it's not a bad thing. But if you come to know Jesus and you continue to live in shame, then it's bad. It becomes excessive. 
And we're not really relying on Christ for our identity. We're relying on our shame and our sin to give us our identity. For some of you guys, it's not shame at all. It's just attitude, right? Many of us struggle with just being negative all the time. That's like your deal. You know, as I go on through life, I'm all, you're, you're the person who just complains about everything that's happening, your work, the people you work with, the person who's driving next to you or me, and what they just did to me and how it inconvenienced me or whether my food didn't come out fast enough or whether I've been sitting here with an empty drink on my table for 30 seconds before someone fills it up. And we have a bad attitude. And I would say that joy and, sh- joy and shame cannot coexist in the same moment. And I would say joy and a bad attitude, very similar thing, cannot exist in the same moment. So you may be looking at all these things and going, yeah, that's all great, Jason, but that's Jesus, right? Like, he's special. (laughs) Of course he can do that. I'm something completely different. And I think that's where the gospel comes in. Because you're right. You're exactly right. You can't do it. You can live your whole entire life just trying to do better at these things. I'm going to just get a hold of my emotions. I'm just going to work on this really, really hard, and I'm going to find an accountability partner, and we're going to work on it, or I'm going to write in my journal every day, and that's going to get me to somehow have success. But without the working of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, you won't last, and you'll give up. It's kind of like a diet. I hate diets. But it's kind of like that. You see, it's the gospel that radically redeems our emotions. As we see in Jesus, like, those emotions aren't bad, but we skew them with our sin. But it's the gospel that comes and gets us back right on the right track. And so as we're thinking about this passage in Proverbs, and you look at this, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and the good news refreshes the bones. I look at that and I go, what greater good news is, what greater news exists than the fact that Jesus died for me and he has applied his righteousness to my account? There's no greater news than that. That is the gospel. That's what it says. Good news is gospel. So you can read it this way. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and the gospel refreshes the bones. And refreshes us from the inside out. It's not the outside in. It's from the inside out. And so when we look at our lives and we look at how our emotions are taking place, those are exterior things, but those are indicators of what's going on the inside. So let's play this out, all right? Let's see, figure out how this practically looks how does the gospel really come in and really change our hearts and change our lives? So the gospel moves us to righteous anger, okay? So how do we respond when we find ourselves being harsh with a family member or harsh with coworkers? Here it is. We preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel that says Jesus could have responded harshly to me, but he chose to give me grace and mercy instead, Right? And so I can give that to other people. But see, that comes inside here. I understand where I am with Jesus, and then it flows out, the light of the eyes thing. How do we respond when we find ourselves passive, okay? Passive about things that are wrong in the world. We can pray for strength and courage to emulate the life of Jesus, to relinquish this idea of security that is found in isolation, 
that our security is actually found in Jesus. The gospel comes in, it changes us, and it's the gospel that gives us security, not our actions that give us security. We have freedom. We have freedom to move and to be brave and to be courageous. The gospel moves us to compassion. When we understand what Jesus did for us, like that should naturally ooze out of us to we're like, we want other people to have this. This is a big deal. It's not for me only. This isn't the Jesus club, like for all the pastors and all the good Christian cool kids. You know what I mean? Like this is for everybody. And that should ooze out of us. We should be moved to sadness when people live apart from Christ. That should affect us emotionally. Don't you think? The gospel moves us to contentment and to not covet. We don't have to have what other people have. You may think we do in some way that that's going to bring us some sort of happiness. But in that moment, we're changing or trading out the creator for the created. So, when you look at your job... This might be apply to a lot of us in the room, and I've heard this many times. You may have a rotten job, a job that you just can't stand, and you are on this mission, whatever it takes to get out of there. And I don't think it's a problem to look for a new job. That's not a problem. I don't think Jesus has a problem with you looking for a new job. But could it be in the midst of your rotten job, Jesus is trying to teach you about contentment? He's trying to teach you that he's enough. Life isn't about Jesus plus something. Jesus plus the right job. Jesus plus the right number of zeros at the end of my paycheck. Jesus plus a certain car or certain friends or certain clothes. Whatever your thing is, certain shoes, whatever it is, you know, it's not Jesus plus that gives us happiness. It's only him. And so as a Christian, we are able to function and be content wherever we are. You can move to contentment in your job. I got a great example of this. I got a friend. Um, his name is Nick. He's up in Tennessee. And he is a draftsman. So he draws pictures uh, for a living. And he draws pictures of uh, electrical transformers. Exciting work, right? And he's been doing it for at least 10 years, maybe 15 years. He's been drawing electrical transformers every day for that much time. And for a while there, Nick really struggled. We had conversations about how he really struggled with contentment and how it was a very difficult thing for him to stay where he was at. And he was looking for a job. And every job he pursued, it was always like the door slammed in his face. Like it just was never working over and over and over again. And finally he sat back and he said, he just prayed. And he's like, okay, God, (laughs) what are you trying to teach me here? And he came to a place where God did a work in his heart where he became content. And his attitude totally changed. And he's like, I'm still looking for a job, but I'm just not desperate because I'm not content. I'm just like to be better or try something different. And as a result of that, people began to talk to Nick. His coworkers would start sharing about their misery that they were experiencing in life. 
he became the guy that people would like sit with at lunch and be like, this is what I'm having trouble with, with my family. And he had the opportunity to interject the gospel into their lives. As a result of being content, or as a result of relinquishing control to Jesus and allowing Jesus to change his heart so that out of that came contentment. You follow me? I think that's how it can work. And that may be you today. That may be like your your issue that you need to pursue and try to figure it and work through that and surrender to that. Now, as we wrap up, I just want to ask you some questions and kind of maybe tie a nice bow on this. The reality of the gospel is that it really imputes righteousness upon us. When we relinquish and surrender our lives to Jesus, his righteousness is placed upon us. And in the midst of that righteousness, it just comes out. It oozes out of us, and the Holy Spirit prompts that oozing. And I think what we do is we try to hold it back. I think we try to put a barrier in place of sin, whatever our sin is, to kind of hold that back, and we, we just don't want that to change us. And so part of living a life that has redemptive emotions where the outside has changed and people look at us and go, there's something different about Jason Piffle. There's something different about that guy that's attractional. It's not his personality. There's something different there. And it's the righteousness of Christ that I'm surrendering my will to his and it comes out. And that might be who you are today. Like for you, you might be looking and going, okay, how are these emotions an indicator of how my heart really is? Do I know Jesus or not? So there's the first question. The second question is, if I know Christ and my life doesn't look any different today than it did 10 years ago, I would say you're holding on to sin. I would say you're holding on to things and you're keeping this righteousness from coming out of you and transforming you. Because it's meant to do that. And it's not because you worked hard at it. It's because Jesus worked hard at it. So, what are your emotions telling you about your heart? It's kind of like a gas gauge in your car. Very few of us go and open, like, the flap up and, and like, pull the cap out and shine a light down in the gas to see how much gas we have in there, right? We have a little indicator on the dash. It gets to E. Most of us run on E all the time. And we look at that, and that is an indicator of what's back in the tank. And I think that's what our emotions tell us. They're the, the, the indicator light of going, what's going on in here? And how do I deal with that today? So that's what I would challenge you to do. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes. And uh, we rearrange these seating so that you can spend time thinking about this. So that you didn't feel like you were pressured to get out of your seat to come up and do communion at a certain time. And so I'd like you to sit with that. What are my emotions? What is on the outside of my life that's telling me about how my heart condition really is? Are there things in my life that during this time I should just repent of? God, I'm, it's Jesus plus this for me. Or I can't let go of this. Or whatever it may be. And when you get that settled, if you get that settled, come and take communion. Because we're remembering the great thing that Jesus did. His body and his blood were broken for us upon the cross. His sin, all of our sin was placed upon him. And he took it. And his righteousness is applied Thanks for listening. 
If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.